myself what's most important to do in the time I have. I'm very grateful for the time I have, astounded at the difference between where I am and where I was in my memory, and astounded at the absence of a future stability to meet the stability that I had when I was growing up. I was born uh, 1940, I lived through the period of the greatest hegemony of American power and democracy and military might. Uh, I, I, with you and everybody else my age, we've lived 70 years without a nuclear war after the use of nuclear weapons once. And I look at my students who have remained the same age for the 40 years I've been teaching them as I've gotten 40 years older. And I wonder what will their life be when they're my age? And what will their grandchildren's lives be? That's what's on my mind. I don't think it's a political question at all. It's an existential question. It may be a religious question. It is certainly an emotionally driven question. And it's what's on my mind. Um, I'm a scientist. And so I guess I have to say as well, it's a scientific question. And when I think about it as a scientific question, I think about it in terms of my work. Uh, I'm a biologist, and uh, I am aware of the gift of insight of a very fancy Englishman 150 years ago, Charles Darwin, who made the unexpected observation, which I think disturbed him as much as it disturbed anyone else, that when you look at the individual members of any species, worms or people or anything in between or plants, no two individuals of the species are the same, even though they are fertile and can have offspring. And so he said, these differences arise and then they're stable and inherited. Inherited novelty may be a sufficient source of novelty over time so that in enough time, new species emerge from old and maybe we are all descended from the same living thing initially. And that's true. And we know with DNA that we have a chemical that can undergo novelty by a change in base pairs. And then stability, because a new base pair will be as stable as the old one. And so Darwin gave 150 years ago a clear explanation for how nature, the living world in nature, is. His wonderful book on the origin of species has the metaphor of a tangled bank. When you look at the tangled bank of a river, you see so many plants and animals and bugs and worms. And they're all in dynamic tension with each other. That is the source of our notion of ecology. And I've lived as a biologist who began as a physicist in the world of Darwin, trying to understand Darwinian pre-adaptive mutation in terms of cancer as distinct from normal cells. I fully think I understand it. Then, as I'm teaching my undergraduates, I discover that we, as a single species, are wholly out of that tangled bank. We are 100,000-fold in excess of our natural numbers. And we threaten the planet by our success. So what I'm thinking about is, how, what is the language that says our problem is our success, not our failure? I am not one of the people who say, woe is us, we failed. My concern is, how do I redefine success so that success is at equilibrium with the rest of the living world? and that we do not destroy the planet. I teach this question. I wonder about this question. I write about this question. 
And what stops me is my fear that the reality is known to me by metaphor, but the metaphor is too scary to easily write about. In my work, I started out in physics and switched to biology. And in my postgraduate postdoctoral fellowship at NYU Medical School, I took Darwin to the problem of cancer. And I said, if Darwin is right that variation arises before it's needed, Perhaps there are normal behaving cells inside a tumor. We would never know that. The tumor would outgrow them. But when we apply chemotherapy to a tumor, the normal-like cells might be the only survivors. And if they're not really normal, they might be the source of future problems. But who ever heard of normal cells arising in the descendants of a tumor? So I did the work, and I found, yes, about 100,000 cells of a tumor is a normal cell in its behavior. It touches another cell, it stops dividing. It's social. It's interdependent with other cells. It hasn't become autonomous and free to divide as much as it wants, the way a tumor does. Did you see my metaphor? How do we understand that our 100,000-fold excess of numbers on this planet, plus what we do to feed ourselves, makes us, in a metaphorical sense, a tumor on the body of the planet? I don't want to do the future that involves some end to us, which is the kind of surgery of the planet, that's not anybody's wish. How do we revert ourselves to normal while we can? How do we re-enter the world of natural selection, and not by punishing each other, but by volunteering to take success as meaning success in survival to the future, not success in stuff now? How do we do that? We don't have a language for that. We do have structures that value the future over current success. I'm at an institution that has one of those structures. Columbia University is one of the most well-endowed universities in the world. That endowment, which is permanent, according to the economic structure of the country, stable, produces wealth without taxation, and that wealth is by government regulation required to be spent in the public interest. My job is in the public interest. My teaching is in the public interest. My salary comes that way. My sabbatical, which allows me to find the time to talk to you now. The idea of an endowment is perhaps a, an expandable idea. And if I were talking this way, not to you, but John, but to the people I hope are watching this, it's the most wealthy and powerful of them that I wish I was talking to. The more you have, the more you can set aside in a de facto endowment to stabilize the present so that the future doesn't collapse on us. That's not a taxation. That's not a redistribution. It's a withholding. It's an agreement to do with less now for the sake of the future. I don't see economic structures that do that. I don't see politics that does that. But I see in kids on the street this week, kids knowing if we don't do something like that, they don't have a world. So, as a scientist, I say, well, the world's not guaranteed. The fact that we're here talking is a product of natural selection. We're here because we're mortal. All life plays out. Darwin's insight. Novelty arises in DNA. But you don't know whether it's going to be better or worse until it's tested in the next generation. Well, you can't have a next generation if you have immortal individuals. 
So the ticket of admission to being alive is mortality. And that's the second thing I think about. How far that is from our vision of medicine. How far that is from our vision of success. A successful medical treatment keeps you alive. Well, what is the medicine of a real whole life? What is the medicine of accepting mortality but still being alive? And then, of course, what is the social responsibility we have to each other as we help each other through that transition? Show me the taxation that's spent on that. Show me the infrastructure that goes to that. It's unspeakable. It's like we can't talk about that. But if we don't talk about it, either at the scale of individual mortality or at the scale of species mortality or at the scale of planetary mortality, we will have participated in the de facto cooperation with nature to end ourselves. How do we use our intelligence to be smarter than that? Since our intelligence frees us from natural selection, that's how we got here, can we not use our intelligence to rethink natural selection and replace our ambition to have as big and as powerful and as much as we can with definitions of success that are stable in nature and keep us alive? Maybe it's necessary to go back and re-talk about what we mean by natural selection. It's not an accident that in Darwin's observations, as, as written in his, in his book, which as far as I understand was not a real book, it was the preprint of what he would have done a book, but then he found out somebody else was going to scoop him and he had the Royal Society publish it because he did have the idea first. His idea is simple. His idea is the absence of intention, the absence of purpose, the absence of direction, the absence of perfectibility are the result of random variation, an inherited random variation being sufficient novelty to provide some offspring who will survive whatever happens. So we are the product of four billion years of ancestral survival despite whatever happened. The greatest catastrophe of the planet, as I understand it, was the emergence in the oceans of a chemical pathway that reversed the regular chemical pathway to that date of how you get energy out of molecules so that you can build your own self by capturing the energy of light and reversing the whole pathway so energy of light would allow you to capture CO, CO2, break off the oxygen, throw it away, and make carbon-based molecules with light as the energy. That poisoned the atmosphere with oxygen and killed almost everything that wasn't photosynthetic. We are the descendants of the very rare survivors of photosynthesis. And we are in equilibrium with photosynthesis ever since, as we know when we eat our vegan lunches. So perhaps there's a very good example of how there is no plan to natural selection. In fact, the word evolution, I believe, was coined by one of Darwin's followers, not him, because it implies the unrolling of something as if there is some place, the plan, and it unrolls in the form of what we see. Darwin's deep insight is there is no plan. It's 150 years later. I don't know another scientific idea that has survived all attempts to disprove it over 150 years and yet is so socially unacceptable as Darwin's exclusion of purpose, his exclusion of direction, his exclusion of perfectibility. Darwin's observations held up by as much scientific attempts to disprove as I, I can imagine, say to us, for instance, 
There is no science behind any ranking of differences among people as some people being closer and others further from perfection. There is none. They cannot be. In fact, in Darwinian terms, our species' future probably resides not in any one of us, but in the maximum of diversity of different DNA versions of human DNA, so that among them some will survive. Where do you think the most variations of DNA of human species are? They are in Central Africa, because all of us are Africans. When I teach a room of students, I say to my students, some of us are African-Americans, but we are all American-Africans. Every human being has an African ancestry only 50, 60,000 years ago. And the people who populate the rest of the planet and their descendants, like me, come from small subpopulations of that African human ancestral population. So most of the DNA variations are in people living in Central Africa whom we disdain and disregard and who have very short life expectancies. But if we understood nature's value of variation, of difference, we'd celebrate our diversity instead of worrying whether we're in or out or not. It occurs to me that the way I talk, you might think that um, I'm making a very depressing argument, but I don't think so. What I'm saying is we are fundamentally in each other's hands, and that among the temptations we have to overcome, the first one I said was the temptation of winning, where we measure success by stuff instead of by conservation for the future. But the second way I think we risk the future is by cleverly thinking some of us can escape it. Now, whether we think we can escape it by living in a satellite or a false planet someplace outside the Earth, or whether we think we can escape it by using our treasure to go to Mars or the Moon, it's the same problem. The we is a very small number of 10 to the 7 times 10 to the ninth people. And I'm interested in the species. I actually think the fundamental reality of life is we cannot be more important than one another insofar as each of us has a direct descent from anaerobic bacteria four billion years ago. There is nothing in nature that values one of us over another. So I'm not interested in any argument that says, I'll make it, the hell with you. In my world of molecular biology, the people making that argument are people who say, I have enough money, I will take the sperm and egg before I have a kid, and I'll make sure that sperm and egg have a bright kid, for the bright future. Well, that's alphas, betas, and gammas, and deltas. I'm not interested in a research plan that presupposes a better and says, I'm going to have a better kid. In fact, given what I understand about how much of our DNA is uniquely human because it associates with changes in embryology that give us a very, very big brain and a very slow developing brain so that our consciousness is social from birth. Any idea that says, I want my kid to have a greater utility, I will play with his or her DNA, destroys the possibility of being accepted for whoever you are. I think it is as eugenically dangerous as any judgment by race, religion, color, or any other thing. You see it a distance of 10 feet. 
So, no, I'm not interested in transhuman models. I'm not interested in saving us. I'm not interested in freezing brains. I'm interested in the same old boring thing inside a mortal universe of mortal people, how best to care for each other and to care for each other's futures. And I do not think the purpose of science and technology is to give one in a billion of us a chance to get away from that. So I think I have to clarify the essence of what I'm trying to say. I am not making a political statement. I do not have a mechanism to value the future over the present in time to give us a future. The current redistribution plans for fairness, for taxation, for whatever political opinion you may have, are all for the present, for the immediate future. They will not save the planet from the species. To save the planet from the species requires a species-wide response. Our entire history since the emergence of our species with its ability to have language and conversation has been in the direction of limiting our ability to hear and understand each other. Our species has hundreds, maybe thousands of languages. If you don't speak someone else's language, you do not know them as a person. They're not quite human. So we have, in a sense, functional subspecies by the thousands of people who cannot talk to each other, who cannot help each other, and who cannot plan together for the future. The same digital world that allows me to give this interview is a digital world that, in principle, opens up this problem. Google has an automatic translator, but it's only for about a half a dozen languages on the face of it. How do we recover, or perhaps invent, species self-awareness? How do we invent the recognition of each of us as one of seven billion people, not as here one of 300 million Americans, not as here one of 10 people in our immediate family, not as here you name how many different categories we are parts of. Who thinks that they are one of seven billion? Thinking makes us different. Thinking is our species marker. And yet we cannot find the language to think about that fact. That is the paradox I wish to discuss. I just said humans lack a human language. Language is part of the process of human self-isolation into subpopulations so that we can care only for the ones that we care about. No human has an obligation to care for the species. We became 100,000 times in excess of natural numbers by not caring about the rest of us, but only about the ones closest to us. But we have a technology which is global. So I don't know who to talk to about this. Maybe the people watching this will know. But it seems to me that is a project worth the World Wide Web. That is a project worth Google Translate. How do we make a statement which is immediately understood, disagreed with is fine, but heard by everybody? Who are we talking to? I'm not interested in talking to people who agree with me. I'm not interested in being right here. I'm interested in raising a question for which I do not have the answer. But I do know that the first rule of getting out of a hole is to stop digging. And we dig that hole deeper when we continue to talk to each other about how we can succeed. So I look around me and I see two current pathways, three if I think about it, which open up, but I don't know where they go, and I welcome further thoughts from anybody who has them. The one pathway is what I just mentioned. 
the web is available. It doesn't speak one language. The second pathway is what I do. Teaching under tenure is a global phenomenon, and it allows me to suspend my age because as I get older, my students don't. And if I take this gift as a responsibility, I should be spending my time working with my students to find the language that works for them, not for me, and having them teach me. Reciprocal teaching is conversation. And so from that, I take the third path. How may we begin to experiment with what it looks like, what it sounds like, when two people who never met each other can converse over their common interest in their grandchildren's survival? So as I think about what I just said, I realize I've contradicted myself on the face of it. On the one hand, I'm talking about everybody. On the other hand, I'm talking about that very, very pre-selected population who makes it to a class of mine at Columbia University. So I think my question is, can my students and I, working together, find the language which is available to everybody? Can we use the safety, continuity, and stability of a university? Can I use the stability of tenure not to build more of people like me, but to get us in service to this problem, which means not leaving where we are, but leaving how we think. We have to think in a new way. We cannot think in terms of only those people who look sound and are like us. I can imagine people hearing me say this will make the mistake that people make all the time and say, I know this guy, he's white, he's old, he's a guy. That's a white old man's opinion, therefore what's it to me? And thereby they will break from their side the possibility of a conversation. And my whole point is, those conversations are intrinsically fragile. They can be broken at, before they start. That's what racism and prejudice are. I see you from 10 feet away, I know you, you're not worth anything, I have nothing to say to you. I beg whoever watches this to think with me, what are the grammar, the language, the verbs and the nouns of the language we can share in spite of our differences? Because if we cannot find that language, our grandchildren and their grandchildren will be very angry at us for good reason, because we didn't try. But I do think the emergence on this planet, in our species, of rituals that bring people together despite their differences, whether those rituals are wrapped in dogma which make them religions, or whether those rituals are wrapped in law which make them political processes, whether those rituals are wrapped in, in, in upbringing and which make them educational, doesn't matter. They're, or whether those rituals are wrapped in physical activity which make them sports, they represent that language in parts. None of those languages is now being brought to the problem which is existential for us all. The closest, perhaps, would be the current Pope's encyclical on global warming. But I don't see that as having generated in one billion of the seven billion of us a change in behavior. So the, 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 the tool is available to reach a billion people if you're the Pope, the language hasn't worked. Doesn't mean it can't, doesn't mean it won't, 
but I'll, I think the, the prior question to what's the language is, how do we understand we're mortal humans? And that we're really not more important than each other in that sense. How do we get past, no, 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 you don't understand, I'm me. I had a teacher who became my friend, a man named Robert Belknap, professor of classics at Columbia. Belknap being a Mayflower name. And I being anxious about my place at Columbia, I was very happy to have him befriend me. And he said two things to me, which I think are worth saying in this context, because they apply. One, uh, we worked together at a, at a university program, and I asked him a question about a difficult colleague. And he said, well, Bob, you know, another person is not a full-length mirror. And how many of us, how often behave as if the person we're talking to is a full-length mirror and we're talking about ourselves? The second story goes to his being a Belknap. I once, before he passed away, said, so, Bob, how many generations has your family celebrated Thanksgiving thinking, I know Mayfowler guy, you know, three, four hundred years. And he says, oh, five thousand, ten thousand years. And I said, what? He said, you don't want me to remember my Mayflower ancestors and forget my Native American ancestors, do you? Which I thought was brilliant and also an invitation to me to get over it. And who cares that I have ancestors from Eastern Europe? It's not the point. We are each unique. So let me say something about our uniqueness, which is embedded in our DNA. Simple probabilities. Every base pair in DNA has four possible base pairs. Every place in the DNA, three billion, it's a text, three billion letters long. Each position in the text could have one of four choices. So how many DNAs are there? There are four times four two-letter words in DNA. Four for the first letter, four for the second. Sixteen possible two-letter words. Sixty-four possible three-letter words. Okay. So that is to say, how many possible human genomes are there? Four to the power three billion, which is to say a ridiculous infinite number. There are only 10 to the 80th elementary particles in the universe. Each of us is precisely, absolutely unique while we are alive. And in our uniqueness, we are absolutely different from each other. Not by more or less, but absolutely different. How do we overcome our mental world's misinterpretation of this to say, Here's a collection of us who are really important, and the rest of them can go to hell. The biology says, no, wait a minute. You're all equally valuable and equally mortal. It may be that a global language does it in music. It may be that a global language does it in art. My wife and I uh, have a book on, on evolution. She's an artist, and she would come to my classes and make drawings. And then I decided the drawings are better than the slides I show. So I would show the drawings as slides, and I'd say to the class, what does this mean? And that would be how I taught. So my wife and I have this book, Course of Nature. Uh, it's her drawings and my explanations of her drawings. Very useful. We got a Chinese publication of it. I opened it up. It's her drawings, and I can't understand a thing about the text. So that makes me wonder whether the language I'm talking about might be drawings rather than current languages. What would a graphic novel of what I'm saying look like? I'd really be interested in that. Sort of as an answer to how we get out of this. It might be a global graphic novel on how not to miss the boat and disappear because of self-serving short-sightedness. That brings me to the question of 
what am I doing now as a professor on this matter? So I have had the arc of a career which makes me among the minority of professors I know who actually use the title professor and profess. So I came to Columbia in 1978, ran a laboratory till 1994, but then having been the dean of Columbia College responsible for admitting women after 240 years, I found a whole world of people who were not scientists that I wanted to be with. So I suspended my laboratory and became a professor professing. I taught and I wrote books. That's the source of my books, starting with Science of Life. Now, I have given big lectures to 500 people, but I much prefer a seminar of 20 because that's a conversation. That's a non-biological family experience. That is a model for breaking away from the biology of family to the mental gift of family. The people who choose to take my class and I share the problem of understanding something. And we talk about it. Some years ago, I decided to create an activity for students based on this. And with a gift from a friend of an endowment of my own, I run a program called the Research Cluster on Science and Subjectivity. And the premise of it is this. I will pay an undergraduate a stipend if he or she will propose a project that involves science, subjective self-awareness, and service to others. And they will own the project, and I will help them. And I have colleagues who share with me the task of helping. But they must never think they're working for us. It's theirs. Two out of three students who find me love this idea and disappear because they wait for me to tell them what to do. But the ones who stay overwhelm me with their creativity and intelligence because they have now been liberated to be who I was when I was 17 at Columbia College. A smart kid with somebody is asking what they think. Earliest program was a volunteer program to work with dying people at the Parents Clinical Hospital in Fifth Avenue through uh, my friend who was the medical director and I, and we had undergraduates go and volunteer to be with people at the end of life. And it became a student activity, and um, a couple of years later, one of these students said to me, why can't we get academic credit for this? So I went to an administrator, and the administrator said, oh, Bob, don't you know that sitting with dying people is not an academic subject? So I went back to the student and said, can't do it. And she said, oh, Bob, don't you know you've got to have a syllabus? So she made up a syllabus, 14 weeks, 14 different readings, 14 different ways of addressing end-of-life issues. And she made the recitation section four hours a week of volunteer service so that whatever the reading, it pertained to their experience. The head of palliative care medicine at Columbia now teaches this course. It's highly desirable, oversubscribed even. It's four points toward 120 plus to get a degree. Tell me another place in the world where a 17 or 18 year old kid can create a program that lives on for years afterwards in its fourth year. That's what I do. Yeah. So what I do is I use the leverage of my authority and title to give students the experience of ownership. And as everybody I know of any age carries some element of imposter anxiety, am I really good enough to be here? I remember it well. I, I don't know anybody who's free of it entirely. 
This is a great gift to students because this defines them as owning something which makes them a part of the place. And it's just a wonderful gift to see after five years, people graduate, they go off, they have families, they have professions, they stay in touch. So I would say, in summary, to answer your question, I have experienced the power of a non-biological family structure. I would like to scale that up to make the species a non-biological family. And that is a technology question that I would love to work with others on.